0: Welcome to The Dialogue by Wirepoints, connecting the dots between our economy, government, and people. And now your hosts, Ted Dabrowski and Mark Glennon. Well, hello, this is Ted Dabrowski from Wirepoints, and uh, I'm joined by Mark Glennon, my partner at Wirepoints, and we're excited to bring you our next edition of the podcast, The Dialogue. And today we have a special guest with us, uh, Paul Vallis. And uh, I'll, I'll introduce Paul in a second, but you know, Paul's here and we're going to talk about school choice and school choice has become a, a well, it's been a hot button for a lot of people for a long time. But what's happened since COVID came around and, and all that it's opened up, all the issues that COVID has opened up, whether it's critical race theory or the masks and, and, and uh, mandates and school closures, uh, suddenly there's a huge interest in whether um the unions and the school districts and the administrators and the system have too much power over the people, over parents and uh, and, and their, their kids' education. And so we thought that it'd be timely to bring Paul on the show and discuss that. And the reason Paul's a, a great guy to talk about this is Paul, back in the day, was the Chicago Public Schools head from 1995 to 2001. Uh, he's had stints at uh, managing the school districts in Philadelphia, New Orleans, Haiti, Chile, Bridgeport, Connecticut so he's been in in a lot of jobs in that he's also uh, run for mayor here in in Chicago um, ran for governor back in 2002 so uh and he, and he's not just a political guy he's a he's a walk and if you listen to Paul Paul will throw out all kinds of numbers and uh and he's got lots of ideas some that uh, you know that we might agree with and uh, others that we think are you know whatever different but um, but we're glad to have him on. Paul, what did I leave out in that introduction that you might want me to add before we get into some uh, deeper discussion on this? Well,
1: well, since the subject is school choice, uh, we were one of the first major urban districts to open charter schools in Chicago, of course. In uh, 95, the state authorized 15 charters for Chicago. And uh, and of course, in Philadelphia, about a third of our schools were, were charters or non traditional public schools. And, uh, and of course, New Orleans is the is the nation's only 100% school choice district. Uh, So all the public schools are in effect, Uh, charter schools or what I call freestanding independent, autonomous schools. governed by a, a, a um, very limited, but nevertheless potent uh, accountability system. And of course, and New Orleans also has vouchers, so they provide parochial school, uh, parents who want to send their kids to parochial school. So, so uh, you know, given the relevancy of, of that experience to this, uh, you know, to the subject matter, I thought I might mention that.
2: Paul, Mark Lennon here. Uh, thanks hey, for coming. You know, I opened up Real Clear Politics today and two headlines there say that schools and parent-parental unhappiness with schools is now a major issue around the country. Even political, a left-leaning piece, is acknowledging that it goes certainly goes beyond Virginia, it goes beyond critical race theory parents seem to me to be really waking up that there's a big problem in our educational system. Uh, you have better political skills than I, do you sense too, that there is a tide turning, uh, it, towards some kind of major school reform here and across the country?
1: Yeah, I believe that, that there's a great deal of momentum, uh, for kind of revitalizing the school reform movement. Let me point out though, that, uh, you know, if, the you know if the republicans are going to sweep both the house and the senate and potentially the presidency uh uh in, in the next election it, i believe it's going to be because the democrats have overstepped in their support of the labor unions and because of the the price that families have paid uh, uh for the schools in effect effectively shutting down their campuses for all practical purposes uh, for literally 12 months and it's done tremendous damage uh that and and obviously some of the other uh, uh uh initiatives that have been pushed that are not focused on improving the quality of instruction or making the standards more rigorous i think that there's going to be a political price to pay that said and done if you look at the national movement there are at, at least at last count 17 states that in that during COVID have in have gone out and they have either created uh, uh or, or expanded uh their school choice programs i'm not talking about charter schools i'm talking about funding for private schools yeah, neighboring in a uh, neighboring Indiana just expanded their uh, uh, voucher program to cover ninety percent of the uh, uh, of the Indiana residents and to cover ninety percent of the tuition to those schools. So clearly, the movement is in is in that direction. And the National Charter Alliance just came out with a report. It was published by the Progressive Policy Institute, founded by David Os- uh, Osborne, And they point out that uh, uh, in the last year, uh, uh, public schools have lost 1.7 million students. By contrast, last year alone, uh, parochial schools, private schools, their enrollment grew by 8%. And the enrollment in the archdiocese schools this year is up 8%, where the Chicago public schools have lost, what, 26,000 students over the last two years. So clearly, people are voting with their feet. And, you know, if we look at the uh, the election in Virginia, that election was lost basically because of, uh, uh, you know, because of on the school issue, on the school, uh, public school issues.
2: Sure. And for Illinois, of course, this is a statewide issue, but let's go straight into the belly of the beast mm-hmm. first. You uh, ran the Chicago public school system from uh, 1995 to 2001. What were things like then and how does it compare to uh, what it's like today?
1: Well, very quickly, uh, when we came in in 1995, the district was on the verge of bankruptcy. You know, Bill Bennett had come to town a number of years earlier called the worst district in the country. And of course, that's how the mayor got control of the schools. Uh, uh, But in effect, we left a district that had uh, had, that had close to 100,000 more students Today enrolled in traditional public schools, then are enrolled then are enrolled in traditional public schools. Now the enrollment when I left was four hundred thirty-four thousand. At next year, it reached four hundred forty thousand, where it peaked, and now it's uh, three hundred and twenty-seven thousand. So, I, I you know so that's a significant decline uh, in enrollment. Um, you know, of course, thank thanks to COVID and massive property tax increases by Rahm Emanuel. You know, the district. Uh, it's finances have improved, but let me point out when we left the district, we left the district with six balanced budgets, 12 bond rating upgrades, and about a billion dollars in cash balances. But more importantly, the district was growing. Uh, the charter school movement was at its infancy and it was expanding. Uh, and and uh, our test scores had, had grown uh, for six consecutive years. And our strategy was to, uh, in effect, uh, redesign our budgets so that they were school improvement vehicles. Uh, every budget had to be a, a long-term, a, had to be part of a five-year budget financial plan. And then to prioritize our resources so that we were pushing resources down to the local school level, we were expanding parental choices through things like charter schools, etc. But what we were also doing was we were working with individual schools to increase standards and to expand the traditional public school offerings. So we were both, creating non-traditional school choice and traditional public choice. But proof is in the pudding. The only six years that enrollment has grown since 1979 were my five years in the year that followed. And I think it was because of those reforms.
0: So, so Paul, I, I feel like this is Groundhog Day because, uh, you know, when when you took over, the place was bankrupt. We know that there are changes that, that happened in the 80s because the the school district was such a mess. And here we are now. Um, as you mentioned, uh, it's it's the, the the enrollment has shrunk by a hundred thousand students uh, since uh, 2000. So it's this uh, whatever that is. I forget the percentage. It's massive, 20, over 25 so, yeah. percent. So the que- so the question is, and and you know we get tired of talking about it, but just a few weeks ago, uh, Mayor Lightfoot came out and said that CPS graduation hit it hit a record 84 percent. And, you know, there was a lot of celebration going on around that. And, of course, we had wire points. We immediately went to the Illinois report card and said, wait a minute. That doesn't square up with what we know about uh, reading abilities and math abilities. If you go to the Illinois report card, there it is. Click on the SAT scores, and about a quarter of the kids at CPS in 11th grade can read or do math at grade level. The rest can't. And so you can't have it both ways. You can't have kids that require um, – uh, you know when they go to community college they have to go to remediation most of them 60 percent of them do you can't mm-hmm. have that and then at the same time say 84 percent can graduate so before we talk about school choice what the heck is going on there what, what is the landscape at cps today well you know it, it seems whether it's criminal justice or for that matter education we seem to be
1: moving away from standards moving away from accountability moving away from uh uh, consequences for for uh ineffectiveness you know whether it's bad behavior on on the criminal justice side or it's school underperformance on the academic side it seems like we're abandoning those things And, and and look the biggest issue in 1995 was my elimination of social promotion they had they had promoted an entire generation of kids like i remember our our first year we had looked at data the previous year and like 80% of the kids who have been promoted into high school were reading at the sixth grade reading level or below. And of course, the, the numbers graduating from, from high school and then moving on to college or community college, or not going to school. I mean, the, those gaps were even broader. They seem to be returning to that because, Ted, just as you pointed that out, I think, what, 25% of the kids are, are meeting standards, state standards. When you pull out, for example, black students, the statistics are actually much lower and you know there was uh, an analysis done of SAT scores. Of course, technically the college the college entrance exams, if you could call them, and the the results are literally parallel. Uh, even though the state has a very low SAT standard for what they consider to be meeting state standards, they have a very low SAT standard. Uh, uh, only 25 percent of the kids in the Chicago public schools uh, are meeting that standard. Only 15 percent of the black kids in Chicago public schools. And as you pointed out, this is just not a Chicago phenomenon. This seems to be a phenomenon in other areas of the state, too. Abysmal test scores, yet surprisingly high graduation rates.
0: So yeah, it's the it, same in Decatur, Rockford. It doesn't it, matter where you go. It's the same. That, it's a, it's it's a state of board of education problem.
1: And and, and look, how many, I, I mean, it was amazing. The Progressive Policy Institute did this other study they've been working on, and I've been having conversations with them state by state. And, and they've been looking at these districts uh, across the nation, that, that have just these abysmal test scores, yet th- the schools are all r- rated highly. Look, 75% of the schools, I think it's 75%, maybe more, the schools in Chicago are rated by the state as like the schools that are not on probation, schools that are, you know, that are making the grade by state definition. So we, you know, uh, abandon all hope, or I should say abandon all standards, because that seems, we seem to... Be moving towards a, a standard less uh, school system where there is no consequences for failing schools, no consequences for in the ineffective teachers, no consequences for the students not learning.
2: Paul, let me uh, take a, a, ask a, a more pessimistic uh, kind of question. I remember Mike Royko writing a column many decades ago before you were around uh, saying basically that the problem with Chicago Public Schools is that the parents are Worthless. It was some kind of blunt, Royko language like that. Um, You obviously are more optimistic that, regardless of parents, and they need to do a better job, obviously. But uh, it can be improved, in your view. I take it, notwithstanding poor performance by the parents as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah. You know, it it can be because let me tell you what's happened. Clearly, families are have there are are serious challenges families face. Uh, my approach was to try to compensate for the, for, for the inadequacies at home. I mean, we even went so far as to develop what we called a parent checklist. I called it the parent report card. So we could literally provide parents with guidance. And in, and in today, when you have the Internet and you have this capacity, you know, and, and most families are connected, the ability to connect with families and to guide parents and, the, and to sometimes give them instruction. I mean, it's unprecedented. The ability to communicate with parents, our approach to communicating with parents, particularly that we're not engaged, was to go door to door, literally. But but yes, there are challenges. There are absolutely no doubt about it. But but that's why the schools get the big bucks. That's why that's why Chicago gets Chicago gets 40 percent of the title one money. That's why Chicago has gotten two point eight billion in the covid dollars, which is distributed based on the poverty formulas. That's why the district is spending twenty-eight thousand dollars per pupil, and when you adjust for the operating budget, I actually think that it's closer to twenty-one thousand or twenty-two thousand. But the bottom line is, is so you do that so you can compensate, so you can have a, a much more comprehensive early childhood program, so you can have a longer school day, so you can have a longer school year. But what's changed? You know, we're paying three times as much in property taxes as we paid twenty years ago when I left the district. I think we're paying $11,000 per kid in property taxes. Back in when I left, when I ran against Rod we where we're spending $3,400. And have we added a minute or a second to the school day or a minute or a second to the school year? I mean, what have we done to increase the instructional time on task? We, we dramatically improved test scores in Philadelphia and in New Orleans. And New Orleans, considered the, one of the worst districts in the country, uh, uh, we dramatically improved, tech. for seven years, New Orleans led the state and improved academic performance. Why? Because I was a genius? No. Because of school choice? Partially, but also because because, because the schools were were these independent, autonomous schools, uh, uh, they were able to have longer school days and longer school years. The kids were in school 35% more time on average than They then what was mandated by the state. So that alone, that alone had a dramatic difference. But you can't do that now.
0: Sorry. You know, Paul Paul, that you know, some people hear you and say, wait a minute, I don't think we want our kids spending even more time at CPS schools. That can make things worse. So and and that's a sad statement, but I think many people would say that. Unless unless of course there was something different about the union contract and about how they were teaching. So Mm -hmm. so you know, one of the things that I've spent time on is looking at this third grade reading results because uh, you've done some good work about talking how how, uh, you know, like the like the Christ, Cristo Ray schools, how they those Catholic schools, they take kids and and put them to work part of the time they're in school. And, uh, you know, I, I got to know Preston Kendall up in Waukegan and the Cristo Ray school up there. And, you know, he's a great guy and I love what they do up there. Um, my concern is in CPS, if you try to do that, well, there's too many kids who can't read when they're coming out of third grade. So they won't be good workers when they're juniors and, and seniors in high school. So my question to you is this have you thought about this and this is a you know a conundrum in a way but you know you talked about social promotions and and this is what they do in in Decatur and in Rockford and mm-hmm. in CPS just look they can't do their work but we got to promote them because if not they're going to be too old for their grade in Florida they passed a third grade reading law and i can't remember what year they passed that but basically they said look if the kids can't meet or exceed and read at grade level in the third grade They will not go to the fourth. And the whole point of that was to create a massive attempt at at spending lots of time. Now, to your point, you know, if a kid can't read, we're going to spend extra time in the school. We're going to we're going to bring all of our resources together so that before that kid goes to fourth grade, he or she is reading at fourth grade. Right. So let me. Um, Yeah. Tell me. Tell me me what you think about that.
1: Let me tell you what we did. Uh, That's when we ended social promotion, the, the mandatory retention grades were third grade, sixth grade and eighth grade. So mandatory retention. So we kept, on the average, about 40% of the kids had to go to mandatory summer school in order to get promoted to the next grade level. They had to be an extended day. We had extended day, two hours a day, one hour of instruction, the second hour of recreation, nutrition, stuff like that. But then we had a six-week, hour day summer school program. But the bottom line was it it, it was transformational. Actually, the number of third graders participating in the bottom quartile went from 52% to 24% in a period of six years. So that means kids were moving. They were moving toward the middle. They were moving toward grade level. Uh, uh, These are the the silver bullets. There's no substitution for having these things. There's no substitution for having an aggressive, uh, standardized, data-driven instructional program. Because of the mobility that exists within the schools, there has to be consistency. That's number one. Number two, there's no substitute for instructional time on task. In Philadelphia, we tripled math scores and doubled reading scores across all demographics in six years. And it was because of those two things, the, the standardized curriculum and the data-driven instruction and the instructional time on task. All our charter schools had data-driven instruction. Uh, the third thing, which and, and what that means is that if the kids are not meeting standard, you have got to increase their instructional time. Nothing closes the achievement gap faster than more instructional time on task. Uh, uh, the, the third thing and the thing that I didn't do to scale, and, and if I were superintendent today, I would prioritize this, is to create the type of early childhood programs that focus on the cradle to three. Because by the time the kids start school, even preschool at four, They are too far behind. Too much of the brain development has occurred at a very young age. We did a program in Chicago that daily for some reason gutted. We're going to try to bring it to scale called Cradle to the Classroom where we identified 2,500 pregnant teens a year. We identified, we provided the parents with coaches. We made sure the babies were born healthy. We got them in daycare, preschool daycare. Some of the preschool was actually home preschooling where we'd have somebody visit the home. When the kids hit third grade, Ted, there was no achievement gap. There was no achievement gap. Cornelia uh, Grumman, a Pulitzer, writing about this program and others for the Tribune. None, zero. The graduation rate among the pregnant teens was 85%. The repeat pregnancy rate was less than 1%. You have to have, so if you have universal early childhood education with the parent coaching, because you need to, to, to transform, you need to help coach and support this next generation of parents. If you then have a strong instructional program with accountability, with me- not having social promotion, at least having mandatory extended day, mandatory summer school for the kids that are falling behind, and if, and, and if you're increasing the, the instructional time on task, uh, those things can be game changers. And the district, unfortunately, has gotten away from all those things. From all those things, and this is not a budget accountability
2: issue. Paul, everything you've talked about, it seems to me, is generalizable to all the schools, struggling schools across across the state. They don't apply just to Chicago. But one where there, one issue where there has been a, a difference, I think, is is critical race theory. Call it whatever you want, wokeism, right. anti-racism. Uh, that has been uh, obviously a very controversial issue. Uh, Outside of Chicago, for the most part, is that you know because the it's hopeless in the city of Chicago that is so entrenched with Chicago Teachers Union and there's right. no hope of changing it. Um, give us your thoughts about that and about what the effect has been on on educational standards generally.
1: Well, you know, first of all, there's no substitution for constantly upgrading your curriculum. You need to do that. We 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 have curriculum committees. We had actually an office of of language and culture, and we were constantly. Upgrading our curriculum, we were, you know, we were teaching African American history year round, just not on African American History Month. And for that matter, when we taught world history, we included African history. The, you know, we had through the local school councils, the schools themselves uh, had had a lot of flexibility in terms of enhancing their curriculum. I mean, we had the Betty Shabbat schools, there are schools that have had have, have, have more Afrocentric curriculum. The bottom line is, there's no substitution for making sure that you're teaching history and that you're teaching it adequately. But number one, when it distracts from quality instruction in the core subject areas, which it is because we seem to be preoccupied too much uh, focusing on those things rather than focusing on a core curriculum, uh, our standards suffer and damage is done. Number two, there's been a move away from accountability. you, You talked about what was done at the state level. Now I guess you don't have to meet certain like, Content area mastery standards get served by whatever, but there's all sorts of mandates about what you need to be learning as an instructor. That's unrelated, unrelated to your ability to instruct in the core subject areas. So when you're moving away from accountability, that is a very dangerous thing. And and finally, when you introduce a curriculum that is not only divisive but a curriculum that further undermines the relationship. Of children with their parents, with their families, that's a dangerous thing. And for white parents, I mean, how are you going to discipline your child when your child comes home and your child has basically been told, uh, you know, that base that that uh, uh, their their generation is uh, their race, their parents or grandparents uh, have have discriminated against others and have somehow victimized another person's race. or for that matter, if you are a black child, how do you go home? And and listen to your parent when 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 your parent has has failed uh, to to uh, to, to uh, uh, be successful in, in addressing these historically uh, 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 racist institutional obstacles that have denied them uh, you know a chance at equal opportunity. So 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 I think it's this detracting. From uh, our need to focus on our core subject areas, it's 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 uh, allowing us to avoid uh, um, accountability in terms of the quality of our teaching, the quality of our schools, and, and I think it's not only divisive, but I think it does damage between the children and their own and their own parents, their own family, and and within their own families.
2: Yeah, Paul, I. Often wonder if you're a, a black kid, why wouldn't you become a criminal? If you're hearing this stuff in school, it's you know everybody with a with white skin is an oppressor. If you have black skin, you're the oppressed. Uh, that makes it pretty easy to justify uh, pretty bad conduct, in my opinion. Well you're uh,
1: You're absolutely right. But what you're also doing, you know, you're giving people an excuse for bad behavior. You're you're almost justifying. You're almost justifying. And we see we see that attitude. Uh, you know. We see the attitude in the state's attorney's office. The way she there, there's just a failure to to charge people, uh, to prosecute people, or to uh, you know uh, set bail for individuals who have long lists of felony convictions, let alone felony arrests. So you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, why? I mean, where's the accountability? Uh, you know, you you're, you you're a victim. What's happening is, is it's it it becomes a justification for everything, and I think that's a very dangerous thing.
2: All right. Well, let, let's move on to school choice, uh, Paul. G- give us an outline, sort of, how it would work. What it would would it look like in Illinois if we implemented some kind of plan here?
1: Well, I think you need to do two things. Uh, school choice is both parental choice and community choice. Let me talk about let me talk about parental choice first. You know, I, you know, I think you know, I I crossed the Rubicon back in two thousand and one when at a American Federation of Teachers convention. I was, I was one of five uh, uh, superintendents who were on a panel discussion, and they asked a voucher question. I think I was the only one who said, "I don't oppose vouchers." You know, I I mean, I believe in school choice. It's not a substitute for providing quality schools. Most of the kids are always going to be educated in traditional schools. But the bottom line is, we need to be expanding choice. And, And and what choice would look like in Chicago is there's no reason, or for that matter, the state. Um, remember, there are many ar- areas of the, uh, of, of the state that do not have schools other than their traditional public schools. So obviously there are certain areas of the state where, it's, where educational choice uh, could work more effectively than others. But the point uh, is, you know, I, the way it would work is the money would, in effect, follow the kids. You would have direct funding. Uh, and they have it in Indianapolis. Um, and there's at least 17 states that have some form of tuition subsidy uh, for children who attend parochial and private schools. Let me give you an example of what it will cost in Chicago. Uh, There are 20,000 students on the waiting list right now uh, uh, for the uh, Empower Illinois tuition tax break. You know, they give companies tuition tax breaks for providing scholarships to parochial schools. Um, If you provided a scholarship uh, uh, for all 20,000 of those students, um, the cost of the district would, the cost of the district would be a, about $120 million. Uh, you know, that would be 1.4% of the district's current budget, 1.4%. I mean, this is a budget that has increased over the last two years by $1.6 billion. So, you know, so for, uh, uh, a reprogramming of about 20% of the school district's revenue, you could literally provide scholarships. You could provide tuition scholarships financially comparable to the to the income support program that the mayor is piloting in her budget. You know, $600 a month. You could literally provide scholarships for about 20,000 poor kids whose families are waiting to take advantage of the tuition credit. So there's no reason why a reprogramming a modest reprogramming of money uh, uh, um, over the next couple of years couldn't allow you to migrate towards an indian style school choice system so that would be the direct funding that would be the parental choice so that is but i i also want to speak to the community choice because that may be of more relevancy downstate uh
2: yeah well, go ahead and describe the, the community choice what what, what you mean the choice to enroll in the program at all.
1: Yeah, well, you know, no, community choice is empowering the community to seek out a new school model. When you have a school that is not performing, it empowers the community to find a better model. Whether that's finding a better public traditional public school model, or for that matter, a, a better charter school model, uh, uh, it it there's no reason why you shouldn't a, a community should have to live uh, to live with a school. Uh, that has been imposed on them by a central administration who is not, who is too afraid to take on their teachers' union and do what needs to be done in that school to transform it. Now, many many uh, cities have begun to take this approach. Camden, for example, they have, they're called the Renaissance School. In Indianapolis, they're called the Innovation Schools. In Denver, I think it's yeah, I, I think they also call their schools either the innovation or renaissance schools. But what happens is when schools are underperforming, uh, uh, those schools are reconstituted with no displacement of kids. You know, um, uh, the city uh, clumsily tried to do something similar to that when they did renaissance 2010. Ted, if you remember, their plan was to close down 100 underperforming schools and turn them over to charters and independent operators. But. But first of all, they didn't select the models effectively. They were dictated by the central office and they displaced all the kids because the kids weren't guaranteed that they could return to their home school. So, so that program actually was more destructive than Ron closing 50 schools, most of which were empty anyway. But that is an approach that you could take. So you're not living with a failing school. There's no obstacle to selecting a model to offer educational services that do not have the kind of collective bargaining restrictions that limit the school day, limit the school year, dictate who you hire, dictate who you fire, etc.
2: So, Paul, I've written for a a very drastic solution, which is entirely reconstituting uh, the Chicago public school system, which I think legally could be could be done if there were the political will to do it. It sounds like you think it wouldn't need to go that far. If you put these scholarships in place, you could leave the system that's there and competitive pressures, I, I take it, you think would force reforms necessary in the public schools. Is that accurate?
1: I, I'll be honest with you. I've read what you've written. I think, you know, I think, uh, I think you're, I, I believe that your reconstitution is on track. I think you have to do more than just have uh, new programs. But in any reconstituted system, you know, because your reconstitution is a separate issue, I believe the district is at the, at a point now uh, uh, when you consider everything, including the the unfunded pension obligations and things like that, where the system needs to be reconstituted. It really can't be fixed. It needs to be. I tried to fix it, okay, and and who knows? I might have been more successful. You never can tell. Uh, had I had, had I been superintendent to this day, but at the end of the day, at, at the end of the day, I believe the system has to be reconstituted. But it has to have two features. You have got to have the, you've got to have direct funding, uh, and you've got to empower the community to where if they have a school in their community that's underperforming, they have to have uh, the right to demand a better model. I think your reform needs to have those two features.
0: Hey Paul, just I want to make sure people yep. understand when you say the word direct funding, that means the money, the public money follows the kids somewhere, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, so you know, so you know, my, my beef is we we've we've been talking about this for a long time. You know, school choice and. In Chicago we we talked about the decades-long problems Um, look school choice is happening at CPS and and sadly it's happening this way people are just getting up and leaving the school system either they're leaving Chicago or they're moving to the suburbs or they're finding their way to the parochial schools but it's happening but it's not happening in the in the in the way it should happen which is that people have some form of voucher or some education savings account or or you're using the term direct funding so so, you know, I, I think and, and this is the, the real hypocritical part about the unions and about the people who oppose school choice uh, for me and, and the work that I did in school choice in Waukegan, you know, the, the real power that the, the tries that I made it in Waukegan, uh, the real power from school choices is giving the powers, empowering the parents to control the money, not the unions, not the union bosses with all those billions of dollars for education right. but letting empowering that single mom or that grandmother who's taking care of the kid empowering them to to use the money and find a school that works for their kids and yet the unions will stop that you know they they will never allow it and neither will the politicians in power so let's talk about the obstacles paul because you've dealt with the obstacles you've dealt with the unions here we are talking about school choice what has to happen do we have to have the mama bears go crazy before this happens because you would think given the failure cps given the the uh, the lack of power that a, a, a family is so they, they have zero power how do we flip this model and how do we get people you know ticked off enough that the system has to change because we can talk about this for another 15 years and we're losing generations after generations of kids
1: yeah well you know lo- the current mayor, for that matter, the next mayor, uh, has the power to do it unilaterally. If the mayor wanted to create an Indiana-style voucher program, the mayor could do it through the city council. So that would mean having the city council votes. And look, the, whoever the mayor is, they're going to dominate the city council. The city council is more, you know, obviously his priority is to protect their seats. You know what I mean? And, and at the end of the day, as the city council, I mean, even the so-called rebellious city council has voted for just about everything that Lightfoot has introduced, including her most recent irresponsible budget. But the point is uh, she can do that. And you know, this, the city's providing huge subsidies to a school district that is spending literally $28,000 a kid and consuming 54% of our property taxes and 25% of all the state school re- monies and 40% of all the federal monies. So there's no reason why the city could not pull back on those subsidies and create a, a Indiana style a Indiana style uh, school choice system where anyone sending their kids to parochial or private schools would be able to get a tuition reimbursement or, for that matter, direct funding. However, that would be structured, and the American do that unilaterally.
2: Paul, does that apply to other municipalities as well? The ability to the, the legal ability to unilaterally do this, or is that just Chicago that uh, could do that today?
1: Well, I think any city council. Probably do that. It would it would probably be more difficult because most cities don't subsidize their schools like Chicago does. Look, Chicago. I mean, <laughs> Chicago picks up uh, the the public employee contribution portion of the pension. Uh, they provide them with uh, with uh, uh, two thirds of the uh, TIF reimbursements every year. And let me point out that when they give schools the TIF money, it, it's not money that they lost because, as you well know, uh, you know uh, when you when the TIFs grow, uh, the the local taxing districts just their their tax rates just go up to give them the levies that they requested. So at the end of the day, it's extra money. So so clearly, where the city of any city council could do that, but where Chicago has the advantage is they are literally subsidizing the schools to the tune of about six hundred and fifty million dollars a year. So you could create a system well within those financial.
0: You know, Paul, I was having a discussion with a, with a reformer who, who's who's dying to bring school choice to to Chicago, and and he made a really good point. He says, I don't care what the laws are for, for school choice. I don't care how it happens. Uh, sorry, I don't care whether it's legal or not. You know, what he says, it's only going to happen when the parents demand it, right? When, when enough parents understand what school choice is, because m- many of them don't even know there's such a thing as a direct funding or a voucher or, or an education savings account. So what does it take? Right. I mean, when you have these decades of this problem, what does it take to to educate families and to make them irate enough to say, you know, I don't want to leave Chicago. I want a better option. Give it to me now.
1: Well, look, you know, my strategy is to encourage the conservative unions, the non-teacher unions to particularly the city, the city unions. The FOP has already taken a position that they want school choice, period. I mean, they've been fighting for residency requirements. Changes in residency requirements for years. Well, now their position in this next round of negotiations is we want we want vouchers, we want tuition tax breaks. Forty percent of the Chicago teachers don't send their kids to Chicago public schools. You know, they they send their kids to broker or private schools. You know, I I think is it is it
0: only forty percent?
1: <laughs> well, then it was forty percent when Forbes did that analysis. Probably even more so now. But the point is here that I believe you can build a coalition. Number one. Uh, Let me tell you what's going to be critical. It's going to be critical to reach out to the unions, uh, uh, the the city unions, who are paying parochial school, private school tuition through their their teeth, so to speak, uh, to build a coalition between charter schools and parochial schools. Charter schools, parochial schools are not a threat to charter schools. Charter schools are not a threat to parochial schools. You need uh, to build a strong school choice coalition. And then and then to connect with that cadre of charter school parents, you know, one in four high school kids in the Chicago public schools go to charter schools. The only reason more don't go to charter schools is because the charter schools have been capped, not only in number, but also in enrollment. So I believe that you can create a coalition, but but it's gonna it's gonna take the reform community raising money, mobilizing, being able to match the teachers union and the type of money that they can spend uh, to do the public relations campaign to, you know, to support aldermen who support school choice, et cetera, it's going to require, but there is a pathway there. There's a pathway there because you pointed out earlier about the great exodus, people voting with their feet. WBZ did a story a couple of years ago when I graduated high school, 50% of Chicago was middle-class today, 16% are, and that was pre COVID. And that is a disaster because we have truly become the tale of two cities. Uh, and and I'm not even gonna talk about the, the, I mean, the only reason that the middle class still remains uh, uh, in terms of Chicago public school parents is because of the magnet schools, the select enrollment schools, and those schools that seem to hug the borders, like the, you know, the schools in Beverly or the schools in Sauganash, et cetera. I mean, other than that, these inner city schools on the South and West side and many areas of the city, I mean, they are, there's there's virtually no middle class in those schools. So, so the bottom line is, I think a coalition has got to be formed. But what's critical is that the business community, organizations like the Illinois Parents Union, the conservative uh, uh, unions, um, you know, the city and, and and the charter schools and the parochial schools all close ranks into a grand coalition because the teachers union finds allies. They they fund these progressive groups. They they. They they hide under the banner of the progressive movement. They realized when they were losing ground 10, 15 years ago to the charter school movement, uh, they realized that they were isolated and they needed to find allies. And that's what the unions have effectively done. We have got to take a page from the union. We need to form allies, form coalitions, and we need to push school choice.
2: Boy, and a big part of that coalition, Paul, has to be, as you were mentioning, the uh, people concerned about the the flight of of people and the tax base from from the state, from the city. Uh, uh, You have a good school system. You'll draw in people. Have a bad school system. You'll push them off. Uh, And it's going to raise property values. It's going to bring in those, bring those middle class and higher income people back into the city. Uh, it, It seems clear as day that that's a key part of the solution for stemming the fundamental uh, mess that we have fiscally across the state.
1: Well, you know, I, I I like to you know, and and it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. But the school district has lost enrollment. You know, from seventy nine to ninety five, which was my, when my tenure began, they lost a hundred and four a hundred and ten thousand um, students, and then. Um, uh, two years after I left, they started losing enrollment again. And since then they've lost 113,000. The school district has fewer students today than they had when the Germans were invading France to, to bypass the Marginal Line. And I'm not talking about World War II. I'm talking about World War One. I. I think it's like 1912. That's not a healthy sign. People are fleeing. The tragedy is our property taxes are unadjusted for inflation, about three and, a half, three and a half times higher than they were 20 years ago. And, and again, this is a district that consumes 54% of our property taxes, not counting the pension subsidies, so it's probably closer to 60%. 25% of all the state revenue for elementary, secondary education goes to Chicago, and 40%. And the Chicago has, The Chicago Public Schools have received close to $7,300 per pupil in COVID money since December, since December. Have we added a minute to the school day? Have we added a minute to the school year? They just decided to give Friday off, a four day weekend, the so-called you know vaccination holiday uh, you know, to a con- with, with full pay. So the school district's headed in the wrong direction and it needs to be reconstituted along the lines and we can debate some of the things that you recommended, but I believe it needs to be reconstituted along the lines you articulated. But any reconstitution has to have two features. It has got to give parents choice. And and because the majority of the kids will continue to be educated in so-called traditional public schools, it's got to give the community choice like they have in Camden and Indianapolis and Denver and elsewhere to say, when that school is failing, we want a new school model and there's not going to be any collective bargaining agreement that impedes that model from benefiting our kids.
0: So, uh, yeah. Paul, uh, it, it begs a question. Um let me ask you. I have two questions here. Uh, one of them is, you know, what do people like Lori Lightfoot and those people in power say? Uh, what might they say privately about school choice? And and of course, I'm I'm asking you to maybe you know pretend like you're you're hearing her speak. That's one question. Then two, you know, people talk about you running for mayor. So uh, why don't you why don't you address that just so that we get that out of the way? Because people people will be wondering as you talk, you know, what your ambitions are, or governor, well, you know- president,
2: president, whatever. <laughs>
0: Well, if if somebody wants to give me a,
1: a healthy campaign fund to run, because, as you know, it takes it takes money to run for mayor. And unfortunately, among the powers that be, it it, it takes uh, money to be taken seriously. But I'm not doing this because I'm running for mayor. Look, I, I, I mean, if I was politically ambitious, I wouldn't have left the state after losing to Rob Blagojevich by one and a half percent to go uh, uh, to Philadelphia. Or I would have come back to Illinois and run for mayor. When I was invited by some people, you know, when uh, when Daly retired, instead of going to New Orleans uh, and doing the work that I did in New Orleans, and I certainly, if I had political ambitions, would not have gone to Haiti forty times. So, believe me, if if I've been charting a political course for myself, uh, I haven't really made the best decisions. I, I think I'm going to heaven, but beyond that, nothing's guaranteed. But uh, but I'm not doing this because I'm running. I'm you, you know you never say never to any, anything, but. This is not why I'm doing this. I I, I crossed the Rubicon on school of choice 20 years ago, and New Orleans only reinforced it. and uh, And it's the only way out. It's the only way out. It's to give parents the power and the really empower community. We pay lip service to empowering local communities, uh, so I truly believe in this. I think this is the most. This and public safety are the two most important issues that the city is facing right now. Uh, uh, and I think we've got to. I think we've got to build a coalition and drive this thing home. And there's no reason why uh, we can't do what we follow the lead of other states that are in infinitely better shape than we are because they've made the right decisions. And those decisions have been in the best interest of the children.
2: Yeah, that. uh, 2002 race, I think it was, against Blagojevich. It's part of your history that I think a lot of people forget. You lost only because he slimed you and was <laughs> able to get away with it. And uh, you know still you well, came, came within a uh, hair's breadth. But,
1: yeah. Mark, I lost because uh, uh, Roland Burr stayed in the race and, and got a, a, a mysterious loan <laughs> uh, a month before uh, the election of about $2.5 million to keep him in that race. Which, which of course i don't think they ever paid off. So the bottom line is clearly you can't run against the establishment without facing all sorts of obstacles. But at the, i have no regrets. I mean i love public service. This is an important issue though and 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 i give you credit at Water Points to champion this and, and 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 we should have a longer discussion on your on on your your earlier piece on uh, revamping or reconstituting the Chicago public schools because i, I think there's so much merit in what you've laid out. Uh, I, I would like to continue that dialogue.
0: Well, Paul, we we appreciate you championing what you do because we believe school choice is incredibly important. Paul and I had a chance to to, to push for opening uh, schools in Illinois uh, during COVID. Open trier was one of the things that you came to and helped champion. Um, we really appreciate you spending the time to talk to us, to to push for school choice. You know, Mark and I and, and, and others who follow Wirepoints are huge believers that that the you know the system dynamic the power dynamics of schools versus parents is is totally upside down, and you could you know you can figure that out from McAuliffe's statement in in Virginia, right? So you know the parents aren't allowed to choose what the curriculum looks looks like, and that's uh absolutely wrong. So, thanks again for for joining us, and yep. um, thank all of you for for joining our podcast, the dialogue uh, with Wirepoints.
2: Thank you, Paul. Take care. Thank
0: you. Thanks, guys.